Welcome back to the 12 Sided Guys. We have Matt. I am Tamarid Pine Sr., Lieutenant General. Scott. And I'm Roost Lorimer. Jordan. Salutation. Sabrina. Howdy, I'm Nari, and this is my buddy eBay. Abby. We play D&D. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Paul, the DM. <laughs> and we're the 12, 12, 12 guys. guys. I think that sounded awful, but hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if you think this is the most triumphant of podcasts, then go rate and review it. It would be most non-heinous of you if you also told your friends. Patreon gets you some most excellent bonus content. And on the Discord, you can philosophize with other fans, dudes. And oh, beautiful babes of the Intermountain West, for whom some of us will travel hundreds of miles and others will drive down the street. Will you go to Fanex with us in Salt Lake City, September 22nd through 24th, 2022? We will have a most triumphant time. Excellent. Excellent, bro. That was, that was righteous, dude. Anyway... If you have a rescued historical dead dudes lost in time by jumping into random trees and fences, then this podcast is for you. It's the Crystal Codex episode 69. Imagine what my wife is thinking sitting in the other room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can hear laughter on the other side of this door. And I just realized my window is open. My neighbors are hearing everything, too. (laughs) A thing of beauty. The chill air buffeted Ebby, incessant and cutting as he stood on the deck of the Allele Eagle, While spring had begun settling in on the valleys and plains below, bringing warmth and new life throughout the former province of Arkelvi, high above the air remained icy. Amarok sat perched atop the gunnel facing the bow, with his eyes closed and his small wings half-opened to catch the air. It was a sort of playful, imaginary flight, as he tweaked and adjusted his stance and the pitch and tilt of his wings. Ebby watched, bemused by the strange dichotomy that this creature presented, at times a sliver of primeval force, older than the mountains themselves, and other times a simple creature, wild and playful. There's wisdom there that goes deeper than most mortals may ever know, Ebby thought as he considered the conversations that he and Amarok had shared over the past years. There's also wisdom in his ability to just let go and find joy in the simplest of acts. Ebby imagined the feeling of wings filled with the wind, the sensation of weightlessness just before the air lifted him up. You needn't pine after that which is lost, Aralt Kumosha. There may yet be a day where you feel the exhilaration of flight once again. Amarok kept his eyes closed as he softly spoke, just loud enough that only Ebby would hear. Ebby glanced down at his metallic hands, up his arms, at his boot-like feet, That does not seem like a likely eventuality, Amarok, he said resignedly. And yet, to hold on to the hope of that day can prove just as uplifting as wings themselves. You see, Arunshea, the love of flight is really the love of freedom. 
Freedom from the ground, freedom of movement and location, freedom from the pull of gravity. But the truest freedom is found within one's own heart, and that does not depend on the presence of wings to achieve. It is hope that orients our hearts upward. From there, it is up to each of us to find freedom, from fear, from jealousy, from ego, from hate. Ebby pondered this a long while. His frustration didn't directly relate to the loss of his wings. Ebby knew that. But what stung was that he had allowed himself to be fettered in his own heart. Fear. Fear gripped at him, creeping into his soul like an invasive vine overtaking the stone wall of a castle. After a brief respite in the mountains re reconvening with Nari's people, Yastin, and the other hardy folk of the mountain tribes, the party elected to head to the newly formed kingdom of Arkelby. Before heading out, the group was able to take some time preparing. Pine was able to alter one of the confiscated adjudicator weapons with the help of the smith, and Ebby stopped by the statue of Lord Moshe and the grove of the tribal patriarchs. He and Roos attempted to lift the curse from Roos, uh, related to those swords of his, but to no avail. That will take strong magic to repair. Finally, before departing, they paid a visit to Nari's brother who had assumed the mantle of Oracle. With his skill, many of the party received tattoos, though Nari abstained. Even Ebby somehow was able to receive one, but it didn't provide any comfort or answers, not really. The whole event just made Ebby realize that their part in these grand machinations was not done yet. In fact, they might only just be beginning to... Ebby's eyes flashed brightly, and he spun where he stood, cloak flying wildly. His right hand flew up into position, wrist collapsing downward to reveal the double barrels of his mana cannons. His left hand trembled at his side. He looked right, left, up towards the higher clouds. Nothing. There was nothing there. Amarok had stopped playing at flight and looked at him, wings tucked into his sides, a look of concern on his diminutive face. The fear was growing in Ebby, seeming to surge from all directions. Fear of the growing inevitability, fear for the small kingdom of Tabori and the people he had grown to care for, fear for Hermine and the free peoples of Alil. He looked over at Daffodil, still writing vigorously in her book, oblivious to his sudden movements. This fear in him felt wild desperate even, and it made Ebby want to lash out and burn away any possible threat to him, to his friends, to his people, to Pavantis. It was in part this fear that fueled his simmering hatred for all things imperial, past or present. Lords and ladies, he had even been willing to kill Pine's daughter. Ebby slowly lowered his right hand, his wrist locking back into its normal position, but his left hand continued to tremble. Though he drew no breath, Ebby realized that his chest and shoulders were heaving, as if trying to gulp in the air around him like a swimmer desperately fighting for life amidst the waves. That fear was growing stronger. Seek for that freedom, Arunshea. There is more at stake than you realize. Excellent. <laughs> Dude, a righteous. <laughs> well, welcome back to the city of Arkelvy. Last we left off, you guys had arrived in Arkelvy after having been dropped off by the Ormex, the three different liberator groups that were on aboard your ship, as well as Daffodil, the stowaway. Um, they had dropped you off about 10 miles north of the city, and you had walked down into the city of Arkelvy. Once inside, 
you had decided to split up into three different directions. One of you went to the library of Lord Cadriel. One of you went to the tailor shop, a cut above tailors, and two of you headed to the temple of Erdos to try to lift a curse. So here we are in the um, late morning in the city of Arkelvy. Who would like to go first as we have split the party? Should we roll initiative? Let's roll initiative, yes. Roll initiative. Nari got an 11. Roos got a 9. Ebby rolled a nat 1 for a 2. I rolled an 11, too. 11, too is not a right, number. So Come means- on now. <laughs> Just takes a little imagination, that's all. <laughs> it looks like Pine has higher dexterity than Nari, so we actually are going to start with... Heading to the library of Lord Cadriel. Uh, um, it's Mr. Douglas. <laughs> yes, to the library of Lord Cadriel <laughs> with Mr. Douglas. Frederick Douglas? Wasn't that the joke last week? That was the attempt at the joke, but that's definitely not the first name I would pick. <laughs> Pine, you wander into this large temple to Lord Cadriel, the uh, the Lord of knowledge, the Lord of kind of uh, open source knowledge, that knowledge should be available to everybody. Um, this library is full of books and tomes. As Pine winds his way through the stacks and towards the, um, the north end of this library, um, he comes into a familiar room. This room has some stacks of books down the center aisle. It looks like there's some books on the sides. At the far end, there is a door that you know leads to some sort of classroom. And you can see in here that every book is in its place, perfectly situated on the shelves. And you also know that if you were to look, you would find one book that's out of place. Moving amongst the stacks, you see a small figure, uh, about three and a half feet tall, tight bun, um, glasses on a kind of a pinched nose, and a perpetual smile on her face. Excuse me, um, Madam Librarian. You see this librarian turn around and look at you, and you recognize Librarian Jem. Yes, may I help you? We haven't met before. And I like to like to point to my eyes and point to her eyes. We haven't met before. I'm looking for a um I'm looking for help with some some answers. You see her smile not change, but her eyes kind of get a little bit bigger and she nods. Yes, it's a, a pleasure to meet you. What can I help you with here in the library of Lord Cadriel? Well, I was directed to this room for some for some research. I was just gonna look around a little bit, see if I can find something on my own, and I'll reach out if I have any questions. Of course, of course. Please feel free to peruse the books and just make sure you put everything back where it was. And then she kind of busies herself over at a shelf. Well, uh, in, 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 maybe in five or ten minutes, if, uh, if you don't see me, you could come look to see if I found what I'm looking for, if that makes any sense to you. Wink. She winks back at you. All right, I'll go look for, uh, I'll go look for a book that's out of place. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, uh, you find the book. I can't remember who the, the author's name, last name was H-A-L. Yeah, Halvers, right? Yep. Very good. You find the book. It's actually not in the same place it was before. It's on top of a different shelf, um, almost out of reach. Okay, well, I'll go find this Halvers book, and I'll go put it between the books by Hake and Hamilton. And I only <laughs> yes. remember those names is because we went to high school with a guy named Jake Hamilton. 
Yes, that's right. Uh, so Jake, if you're listening to this podcast, we have not forgotten you. All right, you put the book in the spl- slot on the on the uh, western wall. You can see where the shelf is missing a book. You put it in, and a secret door opens, revealing a small um, hallway to a staircase, a uh, very tight, narrow, steep staircase leading down into the earth. All right, I'll quickly duck in. You arrive in a subterranean section of the library that you would know is full of the secret knowledge, the hidden knowledge, the illegal knowledge known as the Library of Lady Cadriel. I'll head to the room where I typically found Librarian Horton, or in my previous experience here in Arkelvy, where I would think that uh, Colbrew would be doing his research. You would know that um, Librarian Horton is uh, usually off to the east in the wing that literally um, deals with the uh, the different countries, um, old ancient uh, nations that have long since uh, gone away or been destroyed or been taken over, including the Kingdom of Everlyn, which you know was kind of his specialty. Um, and Lord Colbury, you know, has been in a different section where they um, had the information about different religions as well as the book about inevitability and the cult of inevitability that was written by Librarian Jim. So uh, you assume that one of them is going to be in one place and one's going to be the other place. So who would you like to go speak with first? Well, let's go with Horton first. I don't. It's, I think he was probably more of a anthropologist, but, but I actually have some archaeological questions. So I'm hoping he might be able to like have some uh, knowledge there. Perfect. Right. Yeah. So you head um, you head further east down the long hallway. And at the end of the hallway, there is a door. As you open it up, you find a small room that is lined with books. There is a big table in the middle with books stacked up. You see um, scrolls and things that are spread out. Um, Looks like somebody has been busy working and reading and writing down here as well. And you can see sitting behind the desk is a large, um, basically half orc man that you would know is Librarian Horton. As you walk in, he looks up at you and he says, Oh, Mr. Pine, welcome back to the library of Lady Cadriel. Well, hello, Horton. It's good to see you. But I should tell you, I'm not really here. You're actually speaking with a man named Mr. Douglas at this point. Oh, uh, that's totally understandable because I'm not really here either because (laughs) this place doesn't exist. Yes, right. Um, I had some questions for you. Actually, I actually have a, a full series of questions, and unfortunately, I'm only in town for the day. But uh, I was hoping to get some research started, and then maybe we can correspond with each other to have some answers. Oh, oh perfect. Here, pull up a seat. Let's chat. And he kind of pulls a chair out across the table from where he was working. I know that you're more of an anthropologist studying peoples, and, and specifically the Kingdom of Everlyn. I was hoping to ask you some archaeological questions. You know, you've heard of the tower that's risen out of the bay in Alma, right? Yes, I have. I have. I have not been there, but I have definitely heard of it. I was wondering, because I feel like that might be part of some greater subterranean structure or, or something connected to the peoples of the past, you know, pre, pre-inevitability, um, I was wondering about maybe records of archaeological findings within the city of Alma. I would have to scour the books on Almar. As you can see, and he kind of motions to the, the books all on the table in front of him, I've been 
very much focused on my work here with the uh, the old nation of of, of Everlyn. Um, we've been going through these documents and all these scrolls and books that we managed to actually get from the cellars underneath Mason's Keep. But um, City of Almar and archaeology, um, ancient structures. Let me let me think on that for a second and see if I can find uh, a book that might be able to help. And I can tell you kind of my purpose in this. Um, I'm pretty sure that we've become friends with the librarians here in the secret library. So I I feel like we've been pretty candid with kind of what we know about the peoples of the past, Evie's people, you know, the, the, the Allele people. Right. And so I'll say, it originally come to my knowledge that there was a facility under the city of Almar, well, maybe even before it even existed, but that there was a, a facility there where they conducted some of the research that created the Ormex um, and into inevitability. And I was hoping that we may be able to locate something that maybe went under the, you know, escaped the attention of other people who maybe have discovered this but didn't realize its true purpose. We're heading to Almar soon, and we're hoping to have kind of uh, maybe some points of interest we can hit when we get there. Okay. Um, yes, I. Well, I, I do know this about Almar. Almar is a city that has been built upon itself over and over and over again. It predates many of the other cities here in the known world by a long ways. In fact, that statue, uh, the tower, that statue to Iremil. As far as we have found in any of the records, it it predates written history. It is ancient beyond beyond our comprehension. Nobody knows who built it, um, how long it's been sitting out there in the bay. Okay. So the idea of facilities or uh, other structures built that are underneath the city or that might be hidden in there uh, is not unheard of. It's it's a warren of ancient buildings and houses and castles, structures that have been built on top of each other for millennia. So like Chicago? Yes. Sure, like just like Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) Not like Rome or London. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, I was thinking more like Rome. You know how they say, all all roads lead to Almar. Yes. Well, I was recently reading the Dresden Files books and he talks about that in Chicago a lot. Yes, I knew where you were going with that, because I have read the Dresden Files as well. Okay, well, that would be great if, um, like I said, I'm only in town for a day, and I'm sure you have ways of communicating long distances, but uh, that was kind of my, my primary question for you this time. I do have, I have a question about maybe a forgotten language. I know that there's another librarian here I haven't really interacted with much who specializes in languages. Oh, yes, Berta. Li- librarian Berta would be the one to ask about that. She is a, an expert in, in languages. Oh, her name is Berta. Berta, yes. She's short, stocky, um, white hair and braids. Yes. A real Berta. Yeah, so it, she, it, yes, it, she looks like a Berta then. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, if that's all I can help you with, maybe have you seen Roos recently? Well, he's not in the city with me right now. Wink. Uh, okay, I, I understand. Um... Here, let me, and he starts moving books around and looking for something, and he says, I don't know if this matters anymore, but I did find two things he might be interested in. He pulls out a paper that is, um, 
a uh, it's written with elegant script. It has like the big illuminated first letter. And um, as he puts it in front of you, you see it is a certificate of birth for Roos Bayard, the bastard to Prince Simon Bayard through the loins of Bree Heatherton. So that is the um, the first thing that he reveals to you. And then he pulls out this book and he says, here, this is uh, Roos's uh, birth certificate. But if you look here and he opens up this book and you can see it's just genealogy, like it's like the whole pedigree chart and it gets a little bit hard to follow. Um, but he points and he shows you kind of this line and you can see the line of Simon Bayard, where Bree Heatherton is brought in and the, um, the birth of Roos. But you can also see it connecting through Bree's line back to Roos's mom, including connections to Kira and Roos's dad. Why don't you make an insight check? I roll a natural one. That is very interesting. Apparently, they were inbreeding. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, that's not it at all. That is all I will give you, Pine. But what um, what Horton does is he 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 puts a, a bookmark in that page and he hands you the book as well as the birth certificate. He says, "When next you see Roos, would you give these to him? I think that." Of everything we've found underneath Mason's Keep, I think this will interest him the most. Gladly. So, with, with Kira's name in there tied to things, you know that she is currently the, the queen of, of Tabory, the, the, the new kingdom there? He nods. He, he, I am well aware. So, I know I failed my insight check, but Matt has some insight to him as well. Would it be okay if I conjectured something? If you can figure out the problem, then even better. The insight was just me giving you some hints. Is this saying that potentially Kira has rights to the throne as well? There is a way to make that work, yes. I should say that if this knowledge comes to light, I think it might further complicate the situation between Tabory and Ockelvy. I don't know if you've heard, if you've been up on the streets... They've declared war on Tabory, saying that Kira is attempting a coup to take over this country, when in fact, it's actually King Tenna who has been infiltrating the other countries. He kind of sits down with a dark look on his face, and he says, I suspected as much. Yes, well, some of my other questions, and maybe you can help me with this as well. A chemical, a compound, or a potion called Thoo. Thoo. Yes. If you can find anything on that or where it comes from, there's some connections there that uh, uh, to King Tenor and an attempt on Kira's life. Languages, as I've said. And uh, I have a question about Iremiel and inevitability, but that's probably more of Librarian Colbury's purview. Yes. Librarian Colbury and Librarian Jem have been putting their heads together many nights, um, trying to figure out what's going on since the shattering. But Thu, um, Thu, um, I don't know anything about Thu. I don't know that anybody here would know anything about compounds, but there, there is an alchemist in town, um, a pretty well-known one, that may be able to help you, uh, Floven, at Floven's Ointments. Floven's Ointments. Okay, if we have time, we'll stop by. For a second there, I thought you were going to say his name was Silas, and I'd have been like, ha we found you! Silas? Silas, yes. The name Silas, that ring a bell? 
He scratches his head. He says, it sounds familiar. I'll have to think on that one. He turns around and starts grabbing uh, a couple of books off the shelf and starts looking through them as you're sitting there. <laughs> and he says, I, I think that you've uh, piqued his interest and uh, you may have just given him something to chase. Well, thank you, Librarian Horton. I shall be visiting with the other librarians to see if I can't um, pique that interest in topics as well. He looks up from the book long enough to reach out and shake your hand and says, and it's great to see you again, Mr. P- uh, Mr. Douglas. That's right, Mr. Douglas. Yes. All right. Thank you. All right. So um, Pine has had his conversation with Librarian Horton. Um, who was next? I think it was Nari, correct? Yes, it was. Nari, you have made your way uh, to a, a tailor shop called A Cut Above Tailors. It's small. It's kind of in the neighborhood just north of Eberly Manor. From what you remember from way a long time ago, uh, this is actually um, a, there's a connection here in this shop that goes down into the um, the catacombs beneath the city um, to the chamber of the Wilted Rose where you first met Nilla way back in like episode 24, 25, somewhere in there. As you walk into this small clothing shop, you can see that it opens up into this kind of long room. It's like 25 feet long and 20 feet wide. Um, and there are um, stacks of jerkins and hose and um, hats and things all kind of lined up jackets that kind of thing uh, lined up along uh, some tables as well as on some mannequins in the windows and you can see kind of over in the back corner there is a table and sitting behind the table with a needle and thread and a piece of red fabric in his hands you see a familiar face red skin horns um, dashing mustache, no armor, just casual clothing, but you see Barthimocles. <laughs> <laughs> I believe his name was Bogtholomew. Oh, right. <laughs> Bordemus is sitting behind a desk, and as you come walking in, he doesn't look up. He says, I'll be with you in a minute, and you can see him working on some stitching. Ah, uh, no problem, good sir. Whenever you have a moment, is there anyone else in the shop? Uh, nope, you are in there alone. At the sound of your voice, he looks up, and he drops the needle and cloth and stands up, and says, Nari! Nari, welcome back to Arkovi! And he comes rushing over to you, and he kind of he puts his hands on your shoulders, and he just kind of squeezes them and says, it's so good to see you. It's good to see you too, old friend. Is, uh, is our mutual acquaintance around? He says, Yes, she's below. Um, come, come, let me, let, me, let me take you down to her. He uh, goes to the door, opens it up, and puts like a closed sign on it and shuts the door. Closed for lunch. Yeah, closed for lunch, yeah. That one of those that has the clock on it that says be back at 2.15 or whatever, and then they're never back till like 3.35. Or one that says back in 15 minutes and you have no idea when they put the sign out. <laughs> I hate that sign. I hate that sign. <laughs> There's no frame of reference. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. So Bordemus then leads you um, up some stairs to the second floor of the um, tailor shop. And he leads you down. Up some stairs. Yes. He leads you up some stairs to the second floor of the tailor shop. And then he takes you into um, a bedroom. 
And once he gets you into this bedroom, oh. he closes the door behind. <laughs> he closes the door behind you and then he opens up the wardrobe and he moves aside some clothing and you can see that in the wardrobe there is a ladder going back down to the first floor. I thought you were going to say there was a lamppost. <laughs> no. no. Oh, Bartimius, you sneaky one. <laughs> and then he takes you down the ladder. And as you go down the ladder, you can tell that you are in a narrow space between two walls. You can tell that one of the walls is an exterior wall um, and the other wall is a false interior wall. As you go down these stairs or this ladder, then you come to this small, tiny little hallway and then a ladder descending into darkness. And um, Bordemus is following you. Bordemus, sir, is this still the uh, the best way to get to the catacombs? Is this still your guys' uh, main base through the tailor shop? He says, uh, yes, surprisingly, it was never actually found out. The mercenaries that we fought all those years ago, they, they never reported it to the Empire. So the Empire never found it. And then... After the shattering, nobody came looking for it. So we still make use of it. As you go down the ladder, you come down into a room that you recognize from a long time ago. It is stone. It is cold down here. It is has that smell of earth and and just age and decay. And the uh, this ladder leads you into a small little alcove that then opens up into a larger room, but still relatively small, only like 20 feet by 15 feet. And there is a table, and sitting behind the table is a figure that you recognize. A small, waif-like woman, long white hair, uh, done up in a braid, um, wearing um, nice clothing. Um, Clothing that you would recognize um, she probably wore years ago before the shattering, back when she was um, kind of a, how do I want to put this, high-priced escort? Mistress of the night. A mistress of the night, yes. And here is Nilla. As you walk in, she stands up. She says, Nari, it's so good to see you. And she comes rushing over and she gives you a hug. Nari's going to grab her and kind of pick up her small body and give her a big hug and say, Nilla, it's... It's so wonderful to see you as well. How how goes the effort? It's going. It's going. Come, sit. Let me let me fill you in on what's been going on. Yes, please do. I'm so happy to see that the base is still secure. That's that's at least a good start. Yes, it's it's um surprisingly nobody has ever ventured down here. But yes, we've been really trying to keep track of all of the different cells of of cults going on around here in Arkovi and, and in the general area. What questions do you have for me? I have a few questions, but I would love to hear the state of the, the Wilted Rose. Have you gained any followers? Do we have a, a slightly bigger presence than we once did? She nods. Uh, you can tell she seems a little bit dejected. She says, yes, we have more followers, but it seems that these cults, they get they get more followers every day. They, For every one follower we get, they gain three. It's like we can't keep up. People are losing hope or, or I guess gaining hope in this inevitability concept. Quality over quantity, am I right? Yes, I, I agree. I definitely agree. I'm sure you've heard that King Tenor has declared war on Tabori, right? 
Yes, that's that's my primary reason for coming here. I was I was hoping you had some insight. He he sent some thugs under the influence of a drug through. He tried to pretend, or the the thugs tried to pretend as though they were a cult, but after some research, it became obvious they were King Tenor's pawns. Do you, do you know anything about his plans? What he has in store for Tabory? Yes, I do, actually. We've been gathering some rumors about that. Uh, uh, so, first off, when he first declared war on Tabory, he actually, he gathered up a, one of the groups that we've been monitoring, and he hanged them in the square outside of Mason's Keep. He said that they had tried to take his life, but there was nothing, no no chatter, nothing about an attack on Tenor before that happened. Were they a group of note? No, just this... A small group, a, a, you know, three or four families. Nobody dangerous. Just they would get together and have meetings and discussions, and they weren't dangerous. But we were keeping our eye on them. But they were they were hanged, and they were they said that they had attempted to take the life of King Tenor. But we would have known. We were there. We were listening in. There was no word of an attack on King Tenor. And then what happened? After after he did that, he moved against Tabory? He announced the war on Tabory the same day. But because of his actions, we've actually we've lost track of some of the cells. They've gone deeper into hiding. Um, but we do have some information about um, what he plans to do, at least according to what we've managed to gather. The rumors say that as Tenor uh, heads west, his intention is to sweep up Mayfield first before moving on to Tabory. He wants to take the whole uh, Arkovi province. Besides the obvious assassination attempt, do you have any idea what his goal was with sending his ambassador to Tabory? His ambassador is this, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Miro, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so from what we have gathered about Miro, he has gone from country to country here in this old Arcovian province. And he has been uh, seeking audience with the different monarchs, with the different leaders. Um, But that's all I know about Miro. Uh, He's an arrogant man, apparently, and um, not much liked by um, the people who work with him. No other assassination attempts have followed in his footsteps i mean there are rumors i mean you've heard that that uh terran's protectorate is no longer terran's protectorate right that's now the terran's duchy it's now a part of arkovi their high marshal was killed and apparently it was in one of these one of these uh uh cult groups actually attacked and and killed him in the night that makes sense that that checks out any information on an a- any actual cultist groups, especially the ones involved in inevitability? The only thing that we've managed to uh, figure out is a couple of the different cells that we've been watching before war was declared, they actually, they disappeared as well. There was one group in, uh, in Montman Ravine, just, just west of here. Um, they disappeared a few weeks ago. <gasps> I'm not there with you. You're not there? <laughs> That was quite the gasp. <laughs> Any idea what happened to them? 
I, I guess I would imagine that if there's any truth to these cults actually attacking the different leaders of these countries, I mean, maybe they were recruited, but they weren't, like I said, these, these groups are not powerful. They're not strong. They're not fighters. They're just everyday people. Everyday people who are following inevitability as an excuse sometimes, I guess, just to just to try to find a reason why their lives are so terrible now since the shattering. Or to start an orgy. Again, Pine, you're not there. <laughs> oh, those orgy cults. <laughs> I highly doubt that these cults are responsible for any of these alleged assassination attempts or successful assassinations. I have no doubt King Tenor is behind them. Are there any any groups we should fear aside from the aside from the obvious King Tenor? Um, any strange groups related to inevitability? Not around here. I've heard rumors down further south in uh, Rakolia, in the former Almar province, where the empire had a much stronger hold. But no, not around here. Everyone around here seems relatively benign, in all honesty. I want you to make an insight check real quick. All right, I rolled a 25. <laughs> okay. Um, as Nilla is talking, you just kind of glance over at Bordemus. You can see he is kind of standing um, over in the corner, uh, listening in, um, but you can see he's kind of like swaying back and forth, foot to foot, and he's kind of biting his lip. He's got a little bit of a scowl on his face, but he's not saying anything. Bordemus, do you have any thoughts on the matter, um, either about King Tenor or these, uh, I mean, hopefully non-existent empire stakeouts? He kind of, you realize that he wasn't even really paying attention to what you were saying. He kind of like shakes his head and he's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Nari. No, no I, I don't have any information, any thoughts on, on that. No, I have, um, <sighs> Nari... I've got some bad news. <laughs> Nari, the, um, do you remember five years ago when we were, when you and I stopped the explosion underneath Eberly Manor? How could I forget? Then you remember the crystal that we rescued from that attempt? Yes, yes, the one they were using to, uh, to blow up the manor. He kind of bites his lip and he says, I, I may have done something stupid. Ever since the shattering, since crystals has be, have become so much, so much more rare and such a, a, a hot commodity, I remembered that crystal and I, I thought to perhaps use it in our efforts, uh, perhaps sell it. And uh, I had it appraised. Um, I, I vetted someone who could appraise it for its value. And, um, I, I was sure that they were trustworthy and I brought them down to the catacombs and I showed them the crystal and, uh, the price, uh, 30,000 gold pieces for that crystal. And I thought that perhaps we could sell it and help in our efforts. And then two days later, the appraiser was found face down 
in Deep Lake, dead. And when I went to go check on the crystal, it was gone. That's not ideal. I, uh... You done screwed up? Yeah, I, I would not have wanted it necessarily in anyone's hand, particularly those who are able to spend 30,000 gold pieces, but... I mean, having it in someone's hand without the gold pieces is kind of even worse. It doesn't end there. I've I've been doing some digging and I've been using my contacts and I I think I think I found where it is. I I think it was taken by by a group calling themselves the the disciples of danger. They're just kind of a a, a local gang, but the disciples of danger? Oh yes, the disciples of danger. They have leather jackets and they're cool. Do they play the sick electric guitar? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> you guys, come on. Remember, bad translations, right? Classic Super Nintendo, bad translations, disciples of danger. Thank you very much. I know disciples of danger is a terrible name. I love it. <laughs> oh, thank you. It says, but from what I've heard, what I've gathered, the, the disciples, they they may have it. They're looking to offload it to somebody who can get it out of the city. They don't want King Tenor to know that they have it because then he will confiscate it for the war effort. So they're trying to get rid of it. And from what I've gathered, I think that there is a sale going down tonight for the crystal between what? the disciples of danger and fractured force. Well, that's good fortune, I guess. And this fractured force, uh, any idea what their ties are to? They, <laughs> I, they're not from around here. I think that they have ways of getting in and out of the city with contraband. As long as they ain't a jet, I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose that's better than King Tenor having um, his mitts on it, but... Any any more information about this uh, dirty deal and where it may go down? I, I I heard that it it might go down on on Baker Way, down in the southwest part of town, uh, the uh, less than savory parts. Uh, you're, you're here, and your help would be most appreciated to get it back. I I don't have the manpower to to go there and try to get it back myself. So if, if that's something that you could help us with, that would be fantastic. I know that it's not ours. It's not even our crystal to do with. And I feel really bad that it's in this situation. Um, because to be fair, I mean, it's, I guess, 50, 50 yours and mine. Nari's going to kind of go over to Bordemus and put her hand on his shoulder and say, I think it's 50, 50 yours and mine to bear the responsibility that this doesn't fall into the wrong hands. I'll talk to my compadres and see if we can figure out who has this crystal and, and get it back from them. He nods. He says, I, I would appreciate it. After you speak with them, um, just come find me in the tailor shop. I'll, I'll be there. All right. And we are going to leave Nari. Unless you have any other questions, anything else you want to talk to Nella about? those are the main things and we are going to jump over to roos and ebby
And so that's why country rats are typically smaller than these city rats, you see. It's because of the competition <laughs> versus uh, versus other rat folk or other rat kind. Insular gigantism. <laughs> I'm st- I'm still hung up on the tails. You you see a difference between those two tails. Of course, there's a world of difference between the tails, <laughs> you silly person. They're exactly the same length and exactly the same color. Well, yes, but it's all in the texture and the use. I mean, you wouldn't say that uh, that this pot here is the same as that delicious chamber pot over there. They look the same, <laughs> but they're completely different. I think the most disturbing thing about this conversation is you guys are literally sitting down, just watching rat after rat after rat run by. (laughs) (laughs) Just just sitting in an alley, just watching all these rats. My goodness, this city has a lot of rats in it. (laughs) Okay. All right, Roos and Ebby, you guys have made your way towards the Temple of Erdos. You were uh, in uh, Tabri, there was a, a shrine of Erdos, and this is a similar set up only on a scale larger. Um, so as you approach the south doors, um, you can see this is the this is the entrance where many years ago you guys came before and sought some healing. And I believe Nari had her memory restored to her in this very temple. Oh, it might be worth noting that Ebby has used... Um one of the gifts from Lord Moshe to disguise himself using the kind of illusion disguise. Oh, fantastic. What about Roos? Is he still sporting the mustache and sweater vest? Oh, yeah. I can't take off this sweater vest. Nor should you. It's quite fetching. (laughs) You can literally make your armor look like anything. (laughs) And I choose the most fashionable option. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and while Ebby kind of is this weird amalgamation of everybody, um, he the shape of his facial mustache is very similar to Roos's. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. So you're saying that Roos looks like Roos and uh, Ebby looks like the Chippendales Rescue Rangers bootlegged version of Roos? Yes. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) If you haven't seen the new movie, check it out. It's great. I've been dumboed. Oh, gosh. All right. Um, As you step into the Temple of Erdos, you can see that running down the middle of this temple, just like in the shrine, there are statues of Erdos, this um, tall, regal figure, arms extended with um, like a uh, a candle um, in, in their hands. Uh, in his hands that are that's glowing there is a soft light here on either side of this central uh kind of nave or walkway there are rooms on either side full of beds you can hear some moaning you can hear some chanting you can smell the incense in the air you can see priests and um, acolytes moving back and forth amongst the different rooms and at the center of this temple you can see an, a slightly larger statue of Erdos, um, and you can see that sitting on a bench next to the statue, you see an old figure um, with a white robe on, hood pulled up, um, dark skin, uh, black hair, wrinkles and smile lines on her face, and you see what you assume must be the high priest of this temple of Erdos, and she appears to be asleep. Russell 
um, glance at Evie briefly and then motion for him to follow and he'll walk up to her and clear his throat. <clears throat> Excuse me, miss. Um, uh, no response, just a little bit of a mm-hmm, kind of a mumble in her sleep. Ebby will pretend to laugh or to cough loudly. <laughs> oh, she suddenly starts awake. Oh, and she stands up. Oh, uh, excuse me. I'm, I'm so sorry. Welcome to the Temple of Erdas. Who is in need of healing? Well, I thought it was me, but I think my friend here has the coronavirus. Oh, no, that's a nasty thing. <laughs> It's a fantasy virus. It's actually the whooping whiffles. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds adorable. Oh, gosh. That's that's it. That's got to be it. I've got the whooping whiffles. Yes, he's struck by the whiffles. It's going around. <laughs> she looks at you quizzically and says, uh, okay. Um, and then she walks over to Ebby. So the, the whooping whiffles. He's kidding <laughs> He jests. It's what he does. He's basically a court jester. Bruce, tell the woman what's going on. Even without an insight check or perception check, you can see that this woman is tired. I have need of removing something that I'm unable to remove myself. Can I just say really quickly that I'm really glad that everybody's taking this whole we're incognito very seriously. (laughs) 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 Everybody's disguised. Everybody's using new names. And it's great. (laughs) I low-key want uh, King Tenor to hear rumors that Roos was strutting about the city. (laughs) Okay. Okay, So you say you want something removed. She looks at you and um, she kind of squints her eyes and she says, yeah, that mustache really needs to go. <laughs> <laughs> she says, I see the affliction. Oh, it is a, an affliction of ridiculousness. And she pulls out her, her uh, blessed razor. <laughs> oh. Abby gets all flustered like, how dare you insult what a majestic mustache this person has. She wasn't talking about the mustache. I haven't shaved my legs in a while. <laughs> Oh, is that a thing? I'm pretty sure it is. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> she um, she says, uh, you have been afflicted by a curse. Yes, I have been cursed by some pretty powerful swords. And um, I've tried a number of different places and no one, no matter how hard they tried, um, no one has been able to uh, lift this affliction. She rises from her bench and you can see that um, she, I mean, she has like, you know, like the smile lines and the wrinkles around her eyes and on her creases on her forehead, but she doesn't look old. You know, she looks maybe in her fifties, but she gets up and she moves very slowly. And you can tell this is a woman who is just kind of worn out and she steps forward towards you and she says, I will do my best. Can I, can I see these swords? Of course. And Russell uh, pull out his pack and, and take the swords out. She looks at them and she takes a step back and she says, whose swords? Are- no, no. Best not to tell me. I, I don't want their evil eye on me as well. I don't want to know their name. You can tell that she instantly could tell that these are very, very cursed. 
you shouldn't have to worry about any evil eye from from Lord. Uh, sorry, uh, from this person. And why is that? I'm fairly certain that they're dead. She thinks about it for a second. She nods and she says, yes, dead, but these swords, as she motions to these swords, they carry, they carry the essence. Never truly dead as long as, as long as these are still in this world. You want to be rid of them. I do. There may be a way. Please sit. And she motions at the bench that she was sitting at a moment ago. Russell, um, step forward and sit down. She, um, she walks over to the large statue of, um, of Erdos and she pulls out this, uh, sensor like on a chain, um, like you would see in, um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, and she pulls out some, uh, <laughs> like a scroll. Requiem. <laughs> I love that. I, I, my, my other belief, my, my other religion is Monty Pythonism. So it's, it's pretty near and dear to my heart. <laughs> so she also grabs a, a, a scroll and a, and a quill and she uh, takes this sensor and uh, she lights some incense and she starts swinging it kind of gently over the swords and around you. Uh, Roos. And as she's doing that, you can hear her muttering um, in a language that you don't understand right off the bat. Um, okay. I'll just let it go. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna worry about it. She is doing this for quite some time and she's swinging it. And then as she continues to kind of uh, gently swing it around you, she will bend over and she'll actually write some things down on the paper and then she'll chant some more and then she'll write some more things down on the paper. And after about 15 minutes of doing this, then she stops, takes a big <sighs> sigh and goes and returns the sensor to the statue um, and comes back over with this paper. And she says, Master Roos, this is a very powerful curse. It can be lifted, but not by me, at least not permanently by me. But there is a way. These swords, I can break their bond to you for a time. But these swords must be returned to a place of this being's power for them to ever truly be cut from your life force. Where would such a place be? A temple dedicated to this being? This being's body? This being's home plane? Ah, yes, we'll just hop some dimensions. <laughs> <laughs> you guys aren't like level 15 yet. That's not happening yet. She says, but there are some things that you will need, and then I can perform a ritual that will break their tie for a time, but it's not permanent, and you will feel their pull again unless you can get them to a place of this being's power. How long are we talking? Like... A couple of days, a couple of years. I mean, I've lived with this for as long as I want to. Depending on how strong your willpower is, a week to a month before they will 
have the hold on you they had before or now I should say. Okay. I'll need a box big enough for both swords. It needs to have lead lining it, but it needs to be padded with red velvet inside for the vanity of this being. <laughs> yeah, I think some of that vanity's rubbed off. Or at least I can't remember if I was vain before, but I I feel that. You will also need a brand new knife, virgin steel or bronze, never used to cut. And you will need something else to satiate the sword's thirst for vanity and for blood. A mirror, a mirror will do for the vanity. Okay. And your blood will do for the blood. This is not something I like to do. It is a a dark ceremony. However, I can see that you are in need and it is our creed here in the temple of Lord Erdos that we heal those in need and you are most definitely in need. I appreciate you doing what you can. If you will bring me those things, I can free you of their hold until you can rid yourself of these swords forever. However, I would make one plea to you. When you are rid of these swords and you feel that they are not holding you anymore, you may have the urge to just throw them in the river or throw them in the lake and be rid of them forever. But I warn you, if you do that, eventually this bond you have will again take hold and it will drive you insane if you cannot hold them. Does that make sense? Yes, I... I've gotten used to just carrying them in my pack. As you can see, I've, I've tied the, the hilt to the sheath, so I, I can't open them anymore. But how often do you touch the handles? Oh, pretty often. Yes. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what like a healthy amount of touching your handle is, but like... <laughs> At least once a day. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I do it like a normal amount. <laughs> If you keep touching your handle, you'll go blind. <laughs> she says, I can tell that you have a very strong force of will um, to be able to tie these for now and actually resist the urge to hold these swords, but it will not last. You will give in. And I will help you get rid of these swords. So bring me these items, a mirror, a lead box lined with red velvet, and a virgin blade, bronze or steel. And I will take care of the rest. Is there like a, a lead box store around? <laughs> well, so this is fantasy land. So um, lead doesn't uh, poison you in fantasy. I guess things are made of Perfect. lead. Uh, lead, is, <laughs> lead is a very uh, used metal here. So finding a box. Just not for eating or drinking. I'm, I'm sure that if we, if we go to a smithy, we can find both a virgin blade as well as just lead. And then I bet you um, if we speak to some of our connections... Uh, there was that one tailor's shop. They might have that red silk as well as potentially a mirror. And I'm sure they might even have scraps of, of wood from pallets and things that were shipped and materials that were shipped to them. I think there might be a chance to, to construct that without too much difficulty. We'll be back. Okay. I, I will be here. So like that exits for when you're healed. Do I go back out this way? 
Go back out the entrance where you came in. Yes, I'm sorry. I have not been able to help you yet. Yeah, that's fine. I guess I feel like I did that like five years ago. <laughs> and then you hear through Squire that Pine's like, Hey, I'm uh, Roos, since you're the Temple of Erdos, I, uh, I left my ointment in Tavery. Um, could you pick up some more for me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my friend says he's got a prescription for some ointment. His name's... It's not Mr. Pine. It's, uh, what's he going by? Douglas. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Ferdinand Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> Roos and Ebby, um, you guys will go and scrounge up those, um, those pieces that you are going to need. It will probably be about 25 gold worth of materials. Um, but we will say you can get that all squared away in the next couple of hours. At this point, we're going to jump back to Mr. Pine, who had some more questions in the library. And it's Mr. Douglas, remember? Oh, Mr. Douglas. Back to Mr. Douglas in the library. Mr. Douglas Ferdinand. Douglas. Boo. <laughs> 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 I was going back and forth between Fergus and Ferdinand, and I figured Fergus Douglas sounds sounds dumb. Can I just really quickly apologize to our listener who's named Fergus Douglas? I didn't mean to insult your name. <laughs> I did, though. I totally did. Your name is dumb, oh, and you should God. feel bad. <laughs> it's personal. Okay. <laughs> well, we join. Mr. Douglas in another room uh, in this underground uh, library of Lady Cadriel. Um, this room is uh, smaller than the one with uh, Librarian Horton. There is a table, and again, there's bookshelves. And you, um, uh, Mr. Douglas, you are sitting at a table um, next to a man that you actually have gone on some adventuring with. You sit next to Librarian Colbury, the very man who was with you when you all shattered Pavantis. Uh, he is sitting behind some books, and uh, he is waiting for you to ask your first question of him. All right, so we've already caught up in everything. We're joining us mid-conversation. I don't know why I just narrated that to you, Colbury, but for some reason it just felt right. <laughs> he nods. He's like, I'm used to it. You say weird things all the time. There's a few things. First off, in all of your studies of inevitability, have you ever heard these words before and then i will attempt to first phonetically read out the words that uh daffodil heard on the wind in the in the original language and then i will say oh this this is the translation as far as we can ascertain and then i'll share within the translation and paul could you read that to us one more time uh wind and air the breath of pavantis take this breath and breathe life into the end does that ring any bells for you colbury he thinks about it for a second. He says, no, not particularly. I mean, the end, yes, I, I've heard of the end, but um, air and breath and Pavant the breath of Pavantis, I, I mean, it makes sense that the air would be the breath of Pavantis. No, I don't, I've never heard anything like that. There is some interesting things that have been happening in the world uh, recently, actually. I just received word um, that there is a new prophecy from the Mad Oracle literally days ago, maybe a week ago. Really? Here, and he pulls out a piece of paper. He says, maybe this will, will mean something to you because strange events have been happening down in Almar. 
Well, strange events happened in Tabury. I haven't even told you about our encounter with a prophet of Iremil who spoke in his voice. That you will have to tell me about for sure. Um, he starts to put away the piece of paper he was going to uh, read to you and he starts to get out a piece of paper and a pen and a quill to write down what you were going to say. First, no, first you had the paper already. Read that first and then we'll I'll share notes. Okay, so you are aware that the statue in Almar in the bay, that the eyes would light up at night? Right. Yes. Well, they lit up during the day. Wah! <laughs> Nailed it. So for all of our listeners, this is all information you guys already have from the end of chapter, or of the first episode of, of this new disc. But this is the first our player, our player characters are actually hearing about this. So Colbury goes on to say, apparently at the exact time that the lights came on during the day, um, the Mad Oracle in Almar received another prophecy. Um, and this is what it said. It said, the angel sees, though not at night, but now at day his eyes are light. What was to be is now again. Pavantis soon shall see her end. And end the end, its power grown, the open door by angel shown. Even now the five of Iremil loom, they come to usher in our doom. And after that, there was storms around the city. Uh, storms in the, in the water, and there was uh, a tornado, a twister that came down and ripped up some trees. And then just like that, they were over. But there are rumors that there were beings seen flying away from those events. Well, now I'm putting it together. Paul, remind me, in the warning from the prophet of Iramil, did he say five would come for us or seven would come for us? He said five. All right. Okay, so let me tell you about this prophecy we heard, and then I'll share as much as I can about, about what the prophet shared in the voice of, um, of Iramil slash Ramsey. And then I will say, I think that these are connected. The um, the prophecy that you heard, as well as the warning that we heard about the five coming for us if we were to attempt to stop inevitability. But again, it, it begs that question, Colbury. If it is inevitable, inevitable, with a V, um, if it's inevitable, then why even worry about us trying to stop it? Why send five after us if we, if we attempt to to get in its way. I, I think that means we have far more control, more power in the situation than, than Iremil wants us to believe. He nods his head. He says, I, I believe you're right. I think the more I hear of inevitability and of this that you say this prophet said to you, um, leads me to believe that Iremil is doing everything he can to keep us away because things are not as sure as as we've been led to believe and the speaking the the words of inevitability of it's pointless to try that kind of mentality i think is taking hold in a large even majority of people here in pavantis but not you not me it's not really despair that they're experiencing either it's 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 apathy 
Exactly. And if there's no point in trying, then there's no need to try. I think it is working. I think that Iremil is keeping people from trying to work towards stopping what is to come, which leads me to the same conclusion that you have reached, that it can be stopped. Well, have you ever heard of five associated with Iremil before? Is this, is this new? Not until this prophecy. This is new. And, and I've spoken with Jem on this as well. And she, she has not heard of anything to do with five as well. Um, but one last thing, when the eyes did alight uh, there during the day, then they went out and they have not lightened again since then. Well, I think we probably should shoot a fire arrow at them. And then once they're alight, there'll probably be a Korok there waiting to give us a seed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You found me. I think this answers most, but let me run through my questions here really quick. I had written down, okay. The language of the wind words, I need, still need to talk to Berta about that. If they appear anywhere in history, so far nobody's recognized them. Thu and Silas, that's another thing I wanted to talk about. Do you come here often? That's another question I had for you. Every day. <laughs> the number five associated with Irmiel inevitability, yes, okay. In the archaeological findings within the city of Alma. Oh, one more question for you. And yes. maybe you, because of your connection with the former empire, I'm looking for the location of Deacon Research and Development Facilities, maybe where they were preparing them for sale, for use within the empire. As you know, we have the ability to awaken them, to revive them and, and remind them of their past lives. And I was wondering if you had heard of any Facilities that may still have a, a backlog of those that are still asleep or connections to or, or information about where they may have gone. For Ebby has inspired a new generation of Ormex to attempt to liberate more. And uh, I want to get them on uh, the right path to find as many as they possibly can. He nods. He says, yes, I've, I have heard of, of Ebby's mission and of his success. What I know is that there is a facility and it is in the mountains directly west of the city of Kalta. Kalta, okay. In the old Amerian province, in Rakolia. Kalta is now its own city-state. But directly west, there is a facility. I was never there. I don't know much about it, but that facility is not new. Uh, it predates the empire, and it was shortly after expeditions there that the Deacon program came into force. I think that'd be a, a good place for us to start with our new Liberator colleagues. Okay, um, I guess all that's left, thank you, Colbury. We're only going to be here for a day, hopefully avoid too much unwanted attention. I think we all, I think we all took on pseudonyms and disguised ourselves in different clothing. Ah, cloak and dagger. That would be wise. Yes, right. <laughs> uh, I guess I just the last one is just to speak with Berta. So I, I shall go find her. Okay, yes, she's upstairs. Colbury, as always, it's good to see you. If uh, you, you find anything, or I know I already spoke with Horton and, or Jem, do, uh, do you have the ability to, to cast spells or to speak across distances? Yes, I do have a sending spell that I can use, yes. 
if we find anything more that might help you with the inevitability or Almar or the city-states of Rakolia, anything, I will let you know. Perfect. As always, it's been a pleasure, Colbert. Actually, not as always. At first, I really didn't like you and mistrusted you. But <laughs> as it has grown to become now common, it was a pleasure. If any of that made sense. Likewise. All right, and I'll head upstairs. Just a total complisalt. <laughs> At this point, a few hours have passed. Nari, you have finished your conversations with Bordemus and Nilla, and you are back out in the city of Arkelvi. Pine, you are heading up to the uh, to the main area of the library to the uh, the non-secret section um, of Lord Cadriel and. Um, Ebi and Roos, you make your way back to the Temple of Erdos with a box lined with lead and red velvet, a brand new bronze dagger, as well as a mirror. As you go into the Temple of Erdos, you can see that the high priest is right where you left her. Why don't you guys make a quick perception check? Roos got a 14. Oh, net 20 for Ebby. Nice. Um, as you guys walk in, I think, Roos, you are, you're holding this box. You are kind of antsy. I think you feel that pull of the swords. It's almost like they know what you're planning to do, and they are trying to lure you back to their usage. Um, Ebby, as you walk in, you see something you didn't notice before. Here in the center of the temple, where the large statue of Erdos is, um, there are actually crates that are stacked up, and um, one of the crates is open. With your natural 20, you can see inside. Um, you see um, one of the crates that you can see inside of is filled with vials of a red liquid, um, looking very familiar to vials of potions of healing. And in another another crate, you see um, that it is... Uh, got very carefully uh, rolled up and uh, tied off scrolls of some kind. Um, and you can see that there are um, some of these priests of Erdos uh, are in the middle of uh, bringing another box and setting it and stacking it on these boxes. And then they go off uh, further into the temple. Um, but this high priest is still asleep on her bench next to this large statue. Abby will kind of walk up to her and gently kind of nudge her shoulder and say, Mistress, we we have returned. Sorry to wake you. She kind of gently opens her eyes and looks up at you and she says, I... I'm ready. If you don't mind me asking, what is with all of the boxes of... Are those healing potions? She looks over and... um. You can see a dark look across uh, her face. And she says, yes, those are healing potions. That is that is our contribution to King Tenor's war effort. You can see that her jaw is tense and there's a little flick of a, twi- of a little twinge of a muscle next to her eye. Do I sense that you don't want to give those to King Tenor? She looks back at you. Bruce, and she says, there are wars that are necessary and hurt and pain that is necessary. 
And this, this seems anything but. And to play a part in it, I have my misgivings. I'm assuming that these will be sent to presumably wherever the front of the battle will take place. She nods. It would be an unfortunate event if perhaps they were to fall into the hands of the defenders. Yes. Yes, it would be. However, I can't... You can actually hear a little bit of like a choke in her voice. I can't blame the soldiers fighting for King Tenor. And I cannot condemn them to death because of the choices of a vain, arrogant man. So we will send these potions with the army in the hopes that it will at least save some poor, innocent soul being forced to fight for something that they don't believe in. Let me introduce myself more clearly. My name is Roos Bayard. I am Queen Kira's little brother. She nods. She says, yes, I know. I thought you might have figured it out. I can get these to her hands. It would be a net positive more than helping the aggressor to help those that are being unjustly attacked. You know that he tried to kill, well, you probably don't know this. He tried to kill Kira. I saved her life. Queen Kira has evidence pointing to him being the instigator to all of these uprisings. He, his hands are as filthy as they can be. And you giving these to him and his war effort, it, it's just as if you're helping them. Make a persuasion check. Just make a straight persuasion check. I'm not super persuasive. Oh! <laughs> I rolled a 19 for a 23. You can see she had a response for you, and then it kind of dies in her throat. She says, I'm at a loss. I do not wish to see death. And I fear that should Tenor win this war, there will be more death and subjugation later. If you can get these supplies to Kira, I will suffer the consequences of not meeting the quota that Tenor has put upon me. Let me also say this. I am the rightful king of this city. Did you know that? This, she just, she looks a little bit, um, she shakes her head no, looks a little bit uh, bewildered about that. If I wanted it, which I don't, I could waltz right in with the pedigree to show that I am the rightful last heir to the Bayard family. King Tenor has no right to be in this city. He has no right to be the king here. I hope that you, Roos, king of Tabori and Everlin and this former Arkolvian province, I hope that you can make a difference. Let me make a difference for you. Thank you. Lay out the box. And I'll, I'll do as she says. She says, place the swords in the box. This may very well be the hardest thing you do. All right. I need you to make a wisdom saving throw. Evie, I, I know there was a lot of things you could do today. Um, so thanks for 
Thanks for sticking with me through this. I would be nowhere else at this time. Aww. Thank you for being a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Roos got a 17 on his wisdom save. I was going to say difficulty 17, and I was going to give you advantage because Ebby and his love for you. And then you rolled a 17 anyway, so it didn't matter. That's so sweet. (laughs) Uh, Roos, you take these swords out of the pack and touching them again and holding them in your hand and having them free of your uh, pack, you feel that force, that, that, that warmth, that calmness, that love, that greed, that power coursing through you and you lay them in the box and you also untie the hilts you know that tying them will hinder the process so you untie the handles from the scabbards and you step back from the box and you have set them down they are no longer in your grasp she grabs the knife quickly and grabs your hand and slices your hand, dealing three points of damage. Ow! She takes your hand, squeezes it over the blades, dripping your blood onto these blades, and then sets your hand aside and places the small mirror in the box so that it shines the reflection on the blades themselves. And then she closes the box and latches it and she puts a lock on it and you feel as that latch closes this weight on your shoulders that you did not know was there suddenly lift you take a breath and instantly all of a sudden you can you, your lungs you can fill your lungs again with air you didn't realize how oppressed and how smashed and and crushed you were actually being uh, by having those swords in your possession. And suddenly the lightness, you almost feel like you ever do that thing when you were a kid where you put your arms in the doorway and you push and push and push, then you step out and your arms want to raise on their own. Like that's, that's how you feel. Uh, Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Matt, I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Oh, 100%. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know what you're talking about. You feel that like instantly like, oh, like you're almost floating. Just the, just the release. And you see this priest of Erdos, this high priest of Erdos. Um, her name is Vivian, by the way. She takes your hand and she gives a small little spell to heal you of the three points of damage. And then she pats you on your cheek and she says, you are strong. <laughs> I probably couldn't have done it without my friend here. Well. You're being bashful when it comes to uh, <laughs> to that, but I'm happy to be here for you and to support you in this. Or were you talking about Vivian? I'm so sorry. I was no. I was <laughs> no. I was talking about you. You, Evie. Oh, Roos. You, <laughs> you're just a gooey bear, aren't you? <laughs> a what? Like a like you know like those sweet things that the children eat. Like you know they're gooey. Oh, and they bounce here and there and everywhere? I think you mean gummy bears. <laughs> Is that what they're called? <laughs> Could have swore it was gooey bears. <laughs> so Vivian picks up the box and hands it to you, Roos, and says, you best be on your way. I will take my leave. How many cases of these potions do you have? 
this is what she has. She has, uh, looks like she has three crates with potions in them. And then she has two crates that look like they're carefully, um, uh, uh, stacked with like scrolls, scrolls of healing and of other kind of, uh, other low level spells, but something that a, you know, that a, uh, anybody who can tap into divine magic would be able to utilize those scrolls. As you were kind of, who had the 25 perception? Oh, that was, um, Abby, as you're kind of looking around too, um, you can see that she has like ink stains on her fingers and on her robes. And you imagine one of the reasons why she's so tired is because she has been scribing these scrolls using her magical um, connection to Erdos to write these scrolls for King Tenor and his war effort. That's probably why she's so pooped. Uh, Roos and Ebi, as you leave the Temple of Erdos, we quickly jump back over to the library, again, of Lord Cadriel of Pine, as he comes exiting out of the secret chamber in the uh, kind of the north wing of the temple, and as he walks into the classroom where um, Librarian Berta does her teaching. Um, as you walk into this classroom, you can see benches um, lining the middle of this room. Uh, it is currently empty, except for some, um, uh, there are some bookshelves, but the benches are all empty. And you see this short, stocky, uh, older woman with white hair done up in braids, kind of a perpetual scowl on her face. And she is standing behind a lectern. It looks like she is uh, writing out some notes in a book. Excuse me, librarian Berta. Yeah, she looks up. Yeah. <laughs> so eloquent for a scholar of language. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I have a question for you. I, I came across something. I came across uh, a language that I wasn't familiar with, and I have the translation. I was wondering if you could help me pinpoint the, the name of the language or the culture it came from, if that's possible. You see her, her, her scowl turns into a, um, a look of interest as she comes uh, kind of um, waddling is the wrong word, but she does have this kind of sway to her. You realize um, she probably has some, some knee issues or something, but she kind of hobbles over to you, Pine, and says, uh, yes, let's, let's hear it. Okay, so I will give her, I'll say, first off, this is what it sounds like. No, no, first off, this is the translation as far as we can tell, into Almerian. And this is what it sounds like. And then I will do the phonetic sounding of those words. Um, she asks you to repeat it a second time. And then she nods and she says, yes. Oh, yes. This is, uh, this is the language spoken by lords and ladies. This is, this is celestial. I, I haven't heard this language spoken except for by scholars for, for years. Mostly it's written. But I am told through books and through research that this is the language of, of the lords and ladies. Fascinating. All right. Well, thank you so much, Berta. If I come across any more and I don't have the translation, I know who to come to. Thank you so much. Yep. Eloquent as always. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, Mr. Pine leaves the library and uh, we are going to reconvene as a party. Where are you guys meeting? The bathhouse? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go get naked and then have this kind of a conversation. I, I was thinking a good place might be the garden um, and maybe it's the landmark. It could be that shed where Ebby um, cast plant growth underneath it, like the, where we escaped from the catacombs. 
Uh, lots of exits. We, we uh, Everly Park? Yeah, at Everly Park, yeah. I dig it. Okay. Yeah, you guys uh you guys reconvene here. Now it's 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 later afternoon at this point. It's almost dinner time. Um again, it's springtime, so the sun's not down yet. It'll probably you probably have another three hours of, of sunlight, but you meet back up at this shed. Um memories kind of come flooding back to you. Um you also notice um it's not hard to tell that this area now of the garden is a little bit more wild than it was before. The garden itself for the most part, is still very well manicured. But around this shed, the trees seem a little bit wilder. The bushes are a little bit thicker and um, the weeds are a little bit longer and taller. Things seem a little bit hardier here. And even though, Ebby, when you cast plant growth, you did not do it as like the eight-hour ritual, you can tell that something that you did took hold here. Um, And this place does look different and even the shed itself um has more moss and ivy climbing up the walls of it so and here you are um in the eberly gardens near the garden shed well friends remember that uh that detonation device that was in the catacombs underneath eberly manor oh yes i still have the detonator well it, it turns out sir Bordemus. uh <clears throat> misplaced the crystal and he, he thinks he knows who might have it and, and where that trade is going down. I think we might need to retrieve that before we leave the city. Oh, dear me. Here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we're going to leave it for tonight. Nice. Thank you for playing. Wow, that was a a lot of information was gathered here in the city of Arkelvy. It looks like there might be a little bit more to do here as well. Like arrange somehow to get those crates out of the city? (laughs) We'll figure it out. You do have an airship, but Roos is free of his swords, at least for the time being. Nice. And... Yeah, some exciting things. Anyway, hey, if you like what we're doing, go leave us a rating, uh, review us, uh, check out our Patreon, go join our Discord. The link is in the description. We've been having some fun chats on there with our patrons and with other fans of the show. Paul, I love how you always say, if you like what we're doing, come on, if they're this far in the podcast, they love what we're doing. Thanks for loving what we do. Okay, you like it, so come on, come on. Come on. Just join the Discord. No, I recently posted a picture I found um, that perfectly exemplified um, the descent into the abyss underneath Summerhome. Um, yeah, it um, kind of took my breath away. Anyway, oh, one more thing. We've been hearing a lot of chatter. A lot of you guys have some questions that you want us to answer uh, in another Q&A. We did one about six months ago, and it was a lot of fun. So we are going to be doing another Q&A on the Patreon. So. What you can do, you can get us any questions that you have. Just send them to me, Paul, through the Discord. You can private message me. And then we will be answering those questions and putting them up on Patreon. So if you are a patron, you'll have access to to that Q&A. And if you are not a patron, but you would like to hear what we have to say, then go check out our Patreon. We need all those questions in by July 18th. And so that will be the hard cutoff. Until we get together the next time, we hope you have a most triumphant time. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh, yes, that's perfect. Party on, dudes. <laughs>